good to see everybody. If you've forgotten who I am, my name is Pastor Joshua. I still preach. Anyways, uh, before I get started, um, I do want to, I just feel like I've got a lot of people to thank right now, so bear with me for a second, but I really want to thank, number one, the elders for giving me an extended time off from preaching. I've actually taken a full four weeks off from preaching, which I've never done since I first started preaching. I've never, ever have taken four weeks consecutively off. And so they gave me permission to do that. And then on top of that, I asked them to do the job. So, I mean, I really need to thank the elders, and they did a great job. They opened up the Word. I thought they all preached great sermons. Uh, Somebody said that uh, preaching and proclaiming uh, is the Word of God delivered through personality. And I thought each one of them did that. They delivered the Word of God through their personality. And I know that they all worked incredibly hard on their sermons. They did great. Those are the elders of Cross Point Church. So it was great for you all to see them and, uh, and to hear them teach. And so that was a really great thing. And then the other thing I need to thank everybody for is the VBS. Everybody's worked really hard. I want to thank those who came yesterday uh, and worked really hard late into the evening uh, and just setting everything up. And, and then for the volunteers who have been willing this week to kind of get ready and they're looking at their scripts and they're getting nervous. I've got a script that I'm looking at. I am so nervous about what I'm doing at BB. I just like, I got to talk to kids and I, I'm used to talking to adults, which sometimes is the same thing, but you know, anyway. uh, but I've got to do, I'm really, really, I've never been so nervous about my role. And so I've been looking at my script and freaking out. And so I know that for those of you who have jobs and you're still doing that, like Isaac said, I just want to personally thank you for that. And it's going to be a really great thing. Let me pray and then we'll get started with the message today. God, I thank you for the promise of your presence. I thank you that you have brought us here so that we can worship and celebrate you. And I thank you that you are the God of lost causes, of which I am the biggest lost cause. And yet, by grace, you came into my life and you've come into so many of our lives and changed us. I pray for this message today and for the series that it will minister to us and that you'll guide it. Holy Spirit, come, come into this place and really just take over And uh, help us not to get in the way of what you are communicating to us about Jesus. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are starting a new series today. And uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51. So Acts 7, 51, as you're getting your Bible, you can kind of get ready for that. This series is titled, Lost Causes. And in particular, we are celebrating the God of lost causes. Now, listen, we all have moments in our life when we feel like, I am a lost cause. I have not, I am, I am in a situation right now where I am a lost cause. In fact, uh, just a couple weeks ago, I went back to the gym to lift some weights for the first time in like over a year. And I'm so used to being in my living room where my girls are like, you are master of the living room. You are the bomb. You are so strong, daddy. And then like my girls tell the boy next door, like my daddy's stronger than your daddy. You know what I mean? And I get that all the time and it puffs me up. I start feeling like I'm big, you know? And I mean, after all, I mean, look at this, right? I mean, I'm a very strong man. No. 
No. So I go back to the gym, half cocked, strutting around. I go in the gym. I'm like, I'm going to lift me some weights today. I'm going to lift me some weights. I thought I'd go like at a quiet time of the day. I didn't think anybody else would be there. And I go over the free weights. It is packed. And all the dudes that are there lifting weights are the biggest dudes I've ever seen before in my life. And they're buff, and they're, you know, and they're all pumped up, man. They're going over to the big weights, and they're just like, boom, 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 yeah, you know. And, then, and they're doing all this stuff. And I'm going over to my little dumbbells that are about the size of this little iPhone, and I'm like, wow, <laughs> boom. You know what I mean? And I went from the mentality of I'm master of the living room to, like, I am nothing. I am a lost cause right? Now listen, here's what the Bible says about all human beings. We might be a big deal at our work. We might be a big deal in our home. But as soon as we cross the line into the kingdom of God, guess what? We become a lost cause. When we go into the kingdom of God, we have nothing to offer. When we come into the kingdom of God and say, God, I got something to offer. Watch how big I can be spiritually. Guess what? God says, you are a lost cause. Did you know that? And when, when, when I first started thinking about God and putting myself in, in thinking about just deity and theology and the divine, and I started looking into my own life, I realized I am a lost cause. But this series is about celebrating the God who his whole agenda is saving lost causes. In fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, but the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Isn't that good news? Because when you and I are in the presence of God, that's what we need Jesus to come and save the lost causes. In fact, I'm going to go even further, and I'm going to say biblically, that the only agenda that God has left for planet Earth, I mean like the only thing left for him to do is to seek and to save lost causes. And the more we're on that agenda and the more we realize that, the more we're going to get in tap with the divine and we're going to begin to uh, encounter God and experience God in a whole new way when we realize that it's about lost causes. And so this series of messages, we're going to look at biographies in the history of the church, very particular men. And these men were lost causes, and we're going to outline why if we would have seen them before they met Jesus, we would have said they will never become Christians. These men should have never, ever become Christians or known God or become, or become spiritual giants. And yet, because God is a God of lost causes, we're going to find out that in fact, by his grace, he's able to save anybody. And the first person that we're going to look at in this series, the first biography, is the Apostle Paul. Many of you all know the Apostle Paul and all the things he ended up doing for Christianity and Jesus. But many of us, we failed to go back to his life before he met Jesus when he was a lost cause. Paul was the least likely candidate to be used by Jesus in the ways that he was used. And so we're going to go back to Acts chapter 7 in the context, and there's a couple things you need to know about Paul. First of all, he was completely Jewish, and he had a very Jewish name, which was Saul. And he used that Jewish name Saul before he became a Christian because he was very proud of his Jewish heritage, and that's what he thought made him holy. Later on, after he becomes a Christian, he uses his more Greek name, his Roman name, Paul, to be able to identify with Greeks and Gentiles when he preaches the 
the gospel. But as we look at his life before Jesus, in the text, it's going to say Saul. Everybody say Saul. And then when I talk about him, I'm going to say Paul. So I don't want to confuse you. And if you have dyslexia, like my brother, I'm sorry. I apologize. All right? Okay. So, so we're going to go to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And the context of looking at Paul's life is a man by the name of Stephen. In fact, the first time we ever meet Paul in the Bible as a lost cause is over and against the context of Stephen preaching to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, of which Paul was one of the members. And they arrest Stephen because what Stephen had told the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem is Stephen and said a very simple thing. He said, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. And the only way you can be made right with God is not through your temple or your religion, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Jewish religious leaders, they say, we got to arrest this guy, dragged him into court. And they say, tell us what you mean by that. And so he preaches this stem winder of a sermon, like one of the longest sermons in the history of the church, because long sermons are biblical. Amen. Yes. Bam. Email me now. No, I'm joking. So he preaches like for an hour and a half, right? And he gets to the end. And what he said in this sermon is he's like, you've always rejected God's men, always rejected the messengers and the prophets and Abraham and Moses. And they were the ones who told you that one was coming who was going to make you right with God. They were the ones that told you that a place can't make you right with God, but that a person can make you right with God. And his name is Jesus Christ. And then he comes to the conclusion of this very... Very long sermon. And imagine if I would have finished or if I were to conclude my sermon today by saying this to you after a very long sermon. He says in Acts chapter 7 verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Woo! I would never say that to you. You look very relaxed, not stiff-necked at all. He said you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, the way I imagine this scene is he's in this religious Sanhedrin court, all these religious people, and they look good. Outwardly, they don't look like lost causes. They got their life together. They got their religious clothes on. They got their nice tie on. Amen. They got their French cuffs on. You know what I mean? And he's looking at him, and I imagine him looking at Paul right in the eyes. And he says to them, all of them, but he's looking at Paul, and he says, you stiff-necked people, you always reject. And not only do you reject the prophets who told you it would be the one, but you have murdered and killed your only hope of being made right with God. You can be religious all you want. You're not going to be made right with God because you killed the one that came to save sinners. Verse 54. Now when they, including Paul, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. 
They, they, look up here. They were going, oh, because religion bites. Oh. Religious people bite. People filled with a sense of their own superiority over other people because they're so moral, because they're so good, because their lives are so together. It always bites. And do you know that what has bit the movement of the gospel more than anything is not people outside of the church or outside of religion, but what has hurt the movement of the gospel the most is people within the church. This is one of the main messages of the book of Acts. It was Christians that were used, or so-called, who were used to stop the movement of the gospel more than people, all those bad, wicked pagans on the outside. No, it wasn't the pagans out there. It was people within that destroyed the movement. And they always come after the leaders. They always come after the messengers, and they bite. I haven't been bit a lot by people out in the world. In fact, I've gotten along quite well with people out in the world. I used to sell used cars, amen? (laughs) I hung out with those people. And I liked them. I started finding out that salesmen aren't the only liars. Buyers are liars too. I witnessed to them, told them about Jesus. They listened politely to me. They never complained about me going too long. (laughs) Then I became a pastor. And do you know that the rudest, nastiest things that have ever been said about me have come from within the church? (laughs) Here's Stephen in a religious context. They should understand him more than anybody else, and they don't. They bite. Oh, they bite. Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, usually when we see Jesus at the right hand of God, what do we usually see him doing? Sitting down. I've been going through the Apostles' Creed with my daughters, you know, and there's the part in the Apostles' Creed where he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. The A-team is learning that line right now because usually in the Bible, Jesus is sitting down. He's calm. He's cool. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting down. But when Stephen looks up, and by the way, when religious people start biting you, when, when the church starts discouraging you, when it gets real dangerous in the church, there's only one thing for you to do. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look up at Jesus. What are we going to do in the church when things start getting a little weird? we got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. we got to look up and not down. Oh, please don't look around in the church. Keep your eyes fixed. Fixed on Jesus, and what you're going to find is Jesus is going to stand up. You know why Jesus stood up? Because he was saying, Stephen, I got your back, baby. I'm with you, baby. I'm with you. I got you. I agree with you. They are stiff-necked, aren't you? They are enraging. They do bite, don't they? I'm with you. Your stem-winding, long sermon, and where you're calling these people stiff-necked and stubborn, I agree with you. And you know what? When you look up to Jesus, he'll encourage you. He'll be your good. He won't bite. He'll encourage He'll be a shepherd. 
He'll say, good job. He'll say things to you that sometimes nobody else will say. He'll say, I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. Keep looking to me. I'm standing for you. Stephen's so encouraged by this. I mean, he looks up and... And he's, he's, his mind now is off of the people who are biting and religion that bites. And he's starting to focus on, on Jesus who's standing and who saved him and who's been with him. And, and Stephen looks up at him and he's so encouraged that, that's, that Jesus stood up that he decides he's going to go and tell the people, hey, Jesus standing with me. So he says in verse 56, watch it. And he said to, the, to Paul and his buddies, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, he's saying to them, hey, guys, guess what? I just got this vision, and Jesus is standing with me and not with you. Oh, Jesus on my side. Jesus, I, he's standing up. And they know that, number one, he's saying that Jesus is God. Number two, he's saying that God has his back and not their back. How dare he say that? How dare he speak in these ways against us? He doesn't know what he's doing. He has no idea what's coming for him. Verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They weren't going to let this, this, this defiled, this, this man... Say that the temple is not good enough to be made right with God. This man who says that it's not what we do, but it's who we believe in. This man who talks about Jesus being the way to God. We can't let that defilement, that, that, that wicked, unholy words enter into our ears. We will stop. We will not hear any more of it. Because religion always says that, you know, the way to become clean is to keep outside defiled things from entering you. But Jesus had always said, it's not what's on the outside of man that comes in and corrupts. It's what's on the inside that comes out that corrupts a man. It's the inside out that is corrupting you, religious people. But they didn't understand that. Paul didn't understand that. That's why he's a lost cause. Verse 58. They cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. What they used to do with condemned criminals, that they condemned the capital punishment and execution, they'd take them outside of Jerusalem, and there was this famous cliff that had a pretty steep drop, and they would push that man over. They would push him over that cliff. Religion bites, religion hits, religion kills. And it, it 
pushes them over that cliff. And then what they would do is they would find the biggest boulder that they possibly could. And they would roll that boulder on over that cliff. And then they'd throw it over that cliff. And that boulder would go bounding and bouncing and, and grabbing gravel. And smoke would kick up. And it would bounce and bounce and bounce. And if it happened to bounce over the person who's been condemned to death, then they would all go get stones. Because if that boulder hit him, he'd be dead on the spot. There'd be no need to go get stones. But if it bounced over... They'd be like, all right, got to take off our coats, got to go grab some stones, we got to go give it a good St. Louis Cardinal, wait, it's wicked people, Cubs, fastball. So they took their coats off and they lay it at the feet of Saul, and Saul, Paul, is more than happy to approve of this, and they take stones and they hit them so frequently and so much with such effective fastballs that slowly Stephen, boom, boom, he's getting hit in the head and he's bleeding and there's blood gushing out and it's just a nasty scene. He's half naked, half stripped. And just like Jesus on the cross, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Just like Jesus, he says, don't hold this against them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. People who are saved by grace and forgiveness are always more gracious than religious people who are self-righteous. Always more giving, always more flexible, always more... Say it, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. We go now to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here's our lost cause up close and personal. Now we begin to put a magnifying glass with this context of Stephen. Now we put a magnifying glass over Paul's life and we look closer at his problem. And we look closer at the reason why he was such a lost cause. It says here in verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We learn a couple of things about sin and the nature of sin. First of all, we learn what sin is not. Sin is not immorality. Immorality sometimes is a symptom of sin, but sin is not immorality. Sin is the absence of God in our life. Paul was incredibly moral. He had it going on outwardly, but inwardly he was far from God. His heart was far from God. Here's the second thing we learn about sin. Sin is progressive. It's dynamic. Everybody say dynamic. It's not static, you know. Sin and the symptoms of sin isn't something that just kind of sits there like stagnant water. Sin is powerful. It's a powerful force of darkness. It's not about preferences or opinions or this is just what I think about religion or this is just what I think philosophically. Sin is a powerful force of darkness that is really, really dynamic. And we see it because what happens in our life, even whether we're religious or irreligious, secular or, or, or churched, it doesn't matter. What happens is, is that when sin begins to take over, it progressively makes us worse 
and worse and worse and worse. First, Paul is holding the coats, right? Next, he's approving. So he's not only holding the coats, he's going right on, amen, hey, hallelujah. He's high-fiving, he's approving. The next thing you know, he's going house to house. The next thing you know, he's ravaging. It gets worse and worse and worse. First, we flirt with it. We hold its coats. We approve of it. We get closer to it. Then it just brings forth death. In fact, James chapter 1 has a great uh, passage. This is what was Paul's problem, why he was a lost cause. James chapter 1, verses 14 and following. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what happens. See, even, even to religious moral people, this is what happens. We, we begin to cultivate bitterness. We flirt with bitterness, and then we're more concerned with bitterness than we are unity. Or we begin to flirt with hate. We begin to flirt with complaining or always having a neg- negative attitude, and we kind of cultivate it, and we're more concerned with being negative than being positive, more hateful than more loving. Or you could do it with outward stuff that we do. We become more concerned with our work and workaholism than we do our marriage. Or we become more concerned with drink than we do our kids. Or, And it's compulsive and progressive and dynamic. And Paul is getting worse and worse, not better and better. That's very important. It's it's such an emergency in his life. Sin is such an emergency in our life, in his life, in everybody's life who is lost that without the intervention of Jesus and grace, we cannot fully reform ourselves. We can't fix ourselves because sin is so dynamic. It's stronger than us. And so we go back now. We go later on, jump down now to Acts chapter 9. And we begin to move to Paul's conversion and what Paul needs in his life and what lost causes need in their life. Sometimes, you know, where I come from, what we say is there are some people that just need a swift kick in the rear. Amen? You know, it's like my big brothers. I'm the youngest of three, and I used to sin against them, and they'd be like, when you least expect it, expect it, which meant, which meant a beating is coming. Now, the theological, very profound and important question that we have to ask at Cross Point Church is, does Jesus sometimes beat people up? And the answer is yes. Jesus sometimes has to knock us down, especially if we're religious and prideful and and full of ourselves. He's got to knock us off of our high horse. that's what's going to happen to Paul. We're going to see a swift kick in the rear. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, went to the high priest, so he's not getting better, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on 
his way, the text is clearly making a contrast between the way of God and his own way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Is it? Stop there. Just look. I've got to read a lot more. I've got a lot more reading to do. But isn't that a great phrase? His eyes were open, but he saw nothing. How many of y'all could say that about your life? My eyes are open, but I see nothing. I can see everything around me, but I can't see what life's all about. You know what I'm saying? I got food on my plate, but I'm still hungry. I, I, I'm full, but I'm hungry. I, I, I can hear things. I can hear what you're... It's kind of like in marriage. You're like, I hear what you're saying, but I have no clue what you're saying. His eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What does it look like in our life to get beat up by Jesus so that we move from lost to being found, from a lost cause to being transformed by God? What does that look like? And what that looks like is you have to hit rock bottom. You've got to hit the bottom, and you've got to come to the end of your worldview. You've got to come to the end of what culture has always taught you. You've got to come to the end of what your daddy always taught you about God or religion. You've got to come to the end about what your mama always taught you. You've got to come to the end of yourself and become totally disillusioned. Paul is not saved here. He's miserable because he realizes in this moment, this encounter and seeing Jesus as being who Stephen said he had been, he, he realizes, I'm done. I am done. I am lost. I've got to skip important parts of this story because if I read the whole text, we would be here Forever. Seriously, you'd be here forever, like you'd never leave. I'm serious, you'd be, Will, you'd be stuck up there in that balcony for the rest of your life if I read the full text. You know what I'm saying? Your leg kicked up, like, it'd be like that forever. Marshall, Ashley, y'all be done. You, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Hotel California, that's right. Eric got the song, Awesome. So Jesus comes to a preacher because a preacher's got to go to poor Paul who's beat up, disillusioned, realizes he's sinful, realizes he's going to hell, he's condemned, he's worthy of judgment, realizing he's been persecuting, not the church, but he's been persecuting Jesus. And Jesus goes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go to Paul and I want you to tell him that he belongs to me. And Ananias is like, Jesus, do you know who this guy is? Like he, he has... He has permission to kill me on sight. He's got permission to take me to prison. Are you sure you want me to go? Because I don't know. You know. Sometimes when God comes to us, we're like, are you sure that's what you want me to do, Jesus? I might have some intel on this deal that you don't know. <laughs> verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard. 
from many about this man, how much evil is done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? Ananias is calling Paul, Saul, he's calling Saul his brother, which is what the church is supposed to do with all lost causes, amen? We put our arm around them, we welcome them, and we say, Jesus has chosen you to belong to him. That's the attitude of the church, not religion And religious biting, but gracious loving. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what salvation is. It's to have the presence of God in our hearts and in our life. It's to to have him a part of us. And immediately, here's his conversion, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The lost cause has been found. This blind, blind, bigoted man has now been given sight. This is salvation, the presence of God, the ability to see the beauty of God, the ability to take pleasure in Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, it goes on to say in verse 19, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. That's the only time Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in the whole book of Acts. But if you read the writings of Paul, he calls Jesus the Son of God all the time because he loves the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He loves the fact, and he takes joy and enjoys and acquiesces with his affections that Jesus is God. We know what sin is. Sin is progressive. Sin is the absence of God, but salvation is the presence of God. Salvation is the progression in our hearts of enjoying God for being God, our eyes being open to the beauty of God. Before we're saved as a lost cause, what happens is we think about God and we're not affected by Him. We, we think about God and we don't find Him beautiful. In fact, we find everything else as more beautiful than God. But as we get saved and as salvation takes over our heart, we begin to glory in the brightness of God, the goodness That's why Paul, when he describes salvation in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6, it says, he says this about salvation. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Everybody say seeing. From seeing the light of the gospel. The light of the gospel. Of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine 
out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He was always praying for his churches. I pray that the eyes of your, uh, that the, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might be able to see the full revelation and wisdom of Jesus. That's salvation. He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. He saw God and he said, it's Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. He's so affected by his salvation and he, his life is so transformed that a few things about Paul's legacy. Number one, he would end up writing 13 of the 27 books in the New Testament. Our lost cause, the guy who approved of Stephen getting stoned and bludgeoned to death by stones. This guy is so transformed by the God of lost causes that he writes 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Now, you and I might not ever do that. In fact, we're not going to ever do that. But God can take us, and he can do anything with us he wants, and he can work in our life and through our life and give us a legacy too, even if we're a lost cause. Number two, Paul took the gospel from the Jews to the Gen- and, and to the Gentiles. He was a full Jewish person he'd go into synagogues and he'd say to the Jewish people he'd say this is your Messiah in fulfillment of the prophecy but he also went to to the Gentiles to people outside of synagogue to the people outside of Jewish religion and he would tell them that Jesus came for them too and so therefore part of his legacy is that he took the gospel from Jerusalem to Europe in fact between the years of AD 47 and and 57 in 10 years time the gospel had spread into Europe from Jerusalem from that little uh, kind of Israel Jewish country land of Israel in that little corner of the Middle East and the gospel went all the way to at least Rome and it's likely went to Spain finally he probably traveled at least 13,000 miles taking the gospel all over the world. And that's only what we have recorded in the book of Acts. That's what God can do with lost causes. Do you know a lost cause in your life? Do you know that God can change anybody as soon as he decides to? Do you know that you can pray and continue to hope and continue to to know that as soon as God decides he's going to save somebody, they can be saved? Do you lose hope for your lost causes in your life? Are you a lost cause? Are you somebody that that needs to be gotten a hold of by God? Based on this testimony, there's a few principles to live your life on. First of all, base your life on the grace of God. Paul's testimony teaches us to base our life on the grace of God. Sometimes, you know, in the church, what happens is we go, yeah, I know, I know. I'm saved by grace, not by works. I know I'm saved because Jesus died for my sins. I get it, but now I've got to work. Now I've got to, now I've got to be religious to make up for all that God has done for me. I've got, to, I've got to, it's kind of like we kind of look at salvation as like, a, like, as like a loan from God. Like he gives us a loan, and then we're going to give him monthly installments of payments at a very low interest rate. And so we go to church to make our payment, and we, we pray to make our payment, and we, we do all this stuff to kind of, to kind of buy back and, 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 to, and, to, and to pay off this loan. But in fact, it's great from first to last everything has been provided for in Jesus it's all grace 
Paul would say about his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So he's saying two things about grace. It not only saves us, but in a daily way, grace is also what empowers us to be obedient to God and to do what he's calling me to do. The reason why Paul was able to write those letters in the Bible grace. The reason why he was able to plant all those churches around the world and to take the gospel to Europe, grace. The reason why he worked so hard for Jesus, it was because of grace. That's important. Secondly, base your life on the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Paul was constantly telling his churches, listen to scripture. Then he was writing them letters that were inspired by the Holy Spirit that were to be read and studied in the churches as scripture. And the scripture emboldened these believers. It transformed their lives. It equipped them to do what God was calling them to do. And we do too. We need to to base our life on the word of God. Now listen to me. Some of you, you're not basing your life on the word of God. You're believers But you're not basing your life on the Word of God. You're not listening to the Word of God. You're listening to your own opinions before the Word of God. Some in this very church, based on your comments to me about the church and how the church operates, you're not studying the Word of God. Some of you, by your lifestyles, by things you're doing or allowing in your home, you're not basing your life on the Word of God. And the grace is available to transform you, but the Word of God is there to guide you in your life. And it is sufficient. It's not only supreme, it's sufficient for our life. And it will equip us. Here's the final thing. Base your life on the mission of God. Base your life on the mission of God. You heard what Jesus said. Jesus said to Ananias, he's a chosen instrument of mine. I have chosen him. And Jesus has saved you to be an instrument. Everybody say instrument. Say hammer. Screwdriver. Nail, Nail. board, two by four. (laughs) I know y'all are starting to fall asleep on me, so I had to do that. God saved you to be a board somewhere or to be a nail somewhere or to, be a, or to be a screwdriver or a hammer for the mission. He called you exactly where you're at, gave you the people in your life exactly where you're at so that you could now be a missionary to lost people. Paul didn't get saved and go, man, this is awesome. I know God. I can now pray for a couch for my den. I can pray for a new car. I can pray for a Camaro. I would love to have a Camaro. Like, God doesn't save us to make our life more comfortable. God saves us so that we can live our life and, and, and put our church on mission to be a chosen instrument for His gospel and His purposes. 
So it's interesting. It's a different mentality. I'm a hammer for Jesus as opposed to Jesus is a couch for me. I'm a screwdriver for Jesus as opposed to Jesus is my, you know, cosmic teddy bear that I kind of put, you know, I don't know, get fluffy feelings from. I don't know. Just write this verse down. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 and 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry. And gave us. Everybody say us. Not me, not the pastor, not the preacher. He gave all of us as the church the ministry of reconciliation. And that's so important. And you know, that's why we serve. That's why we, that's why we serve. We, uh, we, we, we follow humble servant leaders in the church who have a vision for the church. And then there's air war stuff for us to do, like singing and lights and computers and computers for the children's ministry. And then there's ground war ministries for us to do together, to do, to do mission, which is like children's ministry and changing diapers in the nursery and welcoming people and greeting people and passing the ushers. So there's this gospel vision. God is using the church to bring lost causes in. We put our arms around them. We love lost causes. We want lost causes in our church. We want people who all the other churches won't let come to their church or don't set up their ministries. We want them here in our church. We want to put our arm around them, and we need people singing and, and, and preaching, and we need people doing life groups and opening up their homes and having small groups in our homes, and, and we need to stop focusing on what the church can do for us and how we can help the church move forward. We don't go to church. We go from church as missionaries, and that's why Paul was saved. That's why you're saved. That's why I'm saved. Base your life on mission. It starts with your kids. Did you know your kids are lost causes? They're jacked up. I got a laugh in the first service. I think I got some serious parents in here like, don't ever call my little Billy. Lost cause. You're a missionary to your child. We are saved to be an instrument for Jesus, and that's what we got to be. Lost causes. Saved and used. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and your salvation. I pray that you would encourage us as we look to you, as we look up, just give us the knowledge that you're standing with us as we stand in your grace and in your forgiveness. We thank you, Jesus, that you died for our sins. We thank you that you rose victorious on the third day. We thank you that you are a part of our life. We all acknowledge that if Paul was a lost cause, we certainly were lost causes, and we've been found. I thank you, God, that you're calling each one of us to belong to you. And I just want to encourage you as believers to really humble yourself if you need to be humbled. But also, if you feel like that you don't deserve to have God in your life, then I really encourage you to look at the work of Jesus so that you can get more confidence in his presence, so that you can realize that you standing in his presence is by grace. 
And then if you're not a believer and you're investigating, I call you if Jesus is opening up your eyes, if, if Jesus is coming into your heart and, and showing, if he's knocking you off your horse to the ground and he's calling you to belong to him, respond to him. Respond to him in prayer. All it takes is responding and saying, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge you're working in my life. I acknowledge my sin, and yet I acknowledge the salvation that you're offering, forgiveness and freedom. Acknowledge that, and you will be saved. We're all lost causes who had to respond to Jesus, so do that. And one of the things that we're doing here in the next few weeks, we're going to have a baptism service. And one of the things that Paul did is he, got, he believed in Jesus and he got baptized. And getting baptized in water doesn't save you. It's, it's your response to Jesus alone. But believers in, in the New Testament, they got baptized soon after they believed. And I would just encourage you, if you're a new believer or even if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you feel him calling you to get baptized, fill out the contact card uh, put down baptism on there. I will contact you. We'll get together. And here in a few weeks, you can get baptized in our baptism service. It's going to be awesome. So do that. Let us know you're becoming a believer. Get baptized. And let's celebrate the God of lost causes. Let's humble ourselves with each other. And let's grow more confident in our prayer life. And let's worship our Savior. Let's stand up and sing to him now and declare that it's by the name of Jesus that we're saved. He has called us out of dark into his marvelous light. He has moved us from being lost to being found, from being blind to seeing. Let's worship him and thank him for that salvation.